it looks like uh, our Facebook connection might be dawdling a little bit again today as it has been doing on and off for a while. Um, but I would like to say good morning to everyone and welcome everyone who's here with us on Zoom and encourage you if you're comfortable to please turn on your camera, share your face, make it feel more like a regular classroom, but please do stay muted unless we are having a period of question and answer and you actually want to be sharing your sound. Otherwise, life happens in the background and sometimes it can get a little noisy. We will be working in the Tanakh again, surprise. So if you have a beloved Tanakh or Chumash nearby that you would prefer to use, please have that at the ready. Otherwise, I will do my best to keep the text up on screen and pertinent to what we're actually discussing at the moment. I'm going to give another moment and see if we might connect to Facebook. Uh, those of you who are joining us, if you receive an invitation to become a panelist, please do accept it. It just lets you into the room. You're not obligated to do anything, but you will be able to share your camera and able to unmute yourself and remute yourself uh, at will. Um, so please do consider accepting that invitation when it comes by. And if you missed it, I will send it again. And if you keep rejecting it, I will eventually get the picture, hopefully. Um, but Let's see, Rabbi Silver, uh, if you'd like to take it away, you're welcome to do so. Otherwise, okay. you could give another moment right. or two and I, see if we Okay, Ho hopefully Facebook will join soon. Good morning, everyone. We're going to continue. We've been looking at the parallel story later in the Chumash of Bilam, who was hired to curse Israel, and that is to prevent Israel from possessing the land. That's the idea. Um, in fact, Balak, the language of Balak, who hires Bilam, is language uh, which recalls for us the story of Mitzrayim. In a sense, he wants to keep them in Egypt to prevent them from moving forward. You know, we explained uh, the context in the past. I'm not going to go over that again. But Bilam, though hired to uh, curse, and Balak says in the beginning of the story, I know whoever you curse is cursed, whoever you bless is blessed. And we discover, of course, that that's not the case. And Bilam is sent, actually sent by God, at the end of the day, to, to bless. The parallel to the story of Yaakov is, of course, very striking, where these mysterious Ish comes to prevent him from crossing over, one might say even to destroy him, and is forced against his will, or in the context of the story, Yaakov succeeds in demanding a blessing. I'm not going to let you go. Um, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And Yaakov succeeds in being blessed by the Ish in chapter 32. Um, the, the blessing is an interesting one. What's your name? Yaakov? It's not Yaakov, it's Israel. That's chapter 32. And Bilam uh, actually blesses, actually four times, but he's hired, in terms of his hire, he blesses three times. And the third time is different from the first two as we will see. But before, before we turn our attention to the third blessing of Bilam, quite famous blessing of Matovo Olecha Yaakov, I wanted again to point out that this change of name, Yaakov becoming Israel, which we encounter in the struggle with the Ish in chapter 32, but actually later in the Chumash, in our study, namely in chapter 35, we have a parallel set of, uh, of verses. Was it chapter 35, beginning in Pasuk um, number, number nine, 
So it says, God bless Yaakov again when he returned from Padana Ram, returned from the house of Ravan. And God says, Your name is Yaakov. But no longer shall you be called Yaakov. Maybe that means not only Yaakov. So God here names Yaakov Yisrael, which is precisely parallel to what we encountered in chapter 32. And now we have the continuation. God continues to speak. So we have God continues to speak. And the blessing over here is a blessing of fertility. Pray, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will emerge from you. Secondly, there's the blessing of kingship. Blessing of kingship is mentioned over here. Kingship is, of course, in the book of Rashid. A very positive thing. And then in the continuation, in the next pasuk is and the land that I have assigned to Abraham and Yitzchak, I give it to you and your descendants. That's God's speech. So we have an interesting phenomenon here. God repeats what we encountered already in chapter 32, but of course, there's much more. Because in 32, it's only your name is changed. In 35, there's a change of name. There's the blessing of the land. There's a blessing of building the nation, and there's a blessing of kingship. So we have, again, one in light of chapter 35, one might even read this issue's statement as your name shall become Israel. Not that the naming takes place then per se, it's God who names, but the issue uh, is blessing him. That The blessing is that God, in fact, will, will in fact, uh, change your name, and, and God's change of name it's called the blessing. It says, God blessed him. Part of the blessing is you're a different person. And this person, Israel, will build a nation and will have uh, sovereignty, kingship, and will possess the land. So we have to keep that in mind. And now let's turn to Bilam's third blessing, which is chapter 24 of the book of Bamidbar. The blessing of Bilam, the story of Bilam, is a very, very important story for other reasons. Apart from it's, in, it, of course, it's important because everything's important. But the Torah gave a lot of space to the story of Bilam. It's a, in the book of Bamidbar. Uh, it's the longest story, actually. So you have to um, take that very seriously. And it's a story that's picked up elsewhere within the Tanakh. Can't get into that right now, but it's picked up elsewhere in the Tanakh. But of course, it also was deeply connected to the stories in Sefer Breshit, including the Yaakov Yisrael story. Now we take a look at chapter 24, and the chapter 24 begins um, by um, telling us that Bilam realizes that it's God is, wants to bless Israel. Kitov, Hashem Israel. He doesn't this time seek omens 
the word in the Chumash is nechashim. It's a striking word because in Bilam's second blessing, he made the point, ki nachash there is no nachash. There's no, God speaks directly to Israel. There's no need for omens, for divination. So Bilam, though, prior, was seeking ways to, to, to curse. It turns out to be blessings. He was going out trying to find a way with Rat Nefashim. But introducing the third blessing, we're told he doesn't bother with that. One even gets the sense that, at least in these verses, that he's sort of designed to, and maybe even desirous of blessing Israel over here. He's not making an attempt to do anything other than God's will. And here we have the second pasuk, and this time he says, Bilam looks up and he sees Israel dwelling according to their tribes. Remember that in the book of Bamidbar, the Torah spells out the way the tribes are set up in the desert. In the first two prophecies, he couldn't see all of Israel. We are told he only could see a part of them. And now he sees all of them. And the spirit of God comes upon him. One gets the sense that the spirit of God comes upon him as a function, as a result of seeing Israel dwelling tribe by tribe, camp tribe by tribe. That is the, that's, one might say the, um, the cause may be too strong, but that's what actually allows him to enter in, into this prophetic mode. Okay. And now he begins to speak in the next pasuk. And he says, he takes up his parable or his theme and he says, this is the prophecy of Bilam, the son of Ba'ar, the prophecy of the one whose eye, whose eye is true. I'm just using the translation of the year. The word, who beholds the one who hears God's speech, who beholds visions from the Almighty, prostrate with eyes unveiled. Now here there's something very interesting about Pasuk Dawid, and this is the following, maybe more than one thing, I'll mention one, which is the name of God. In the first two prophecies, it's either Eo, Elohim, Eo, or Hashem, Yudhei Bafei. But in this verse over here, Introductory verse to prophecy number three. The name of God over here is Shin Dawid Yud. And that's actually quite interesting to us, of course. It's always interesting what names of God are being employed. But remember that the Shin Dawid Yud is the way God introduces God to Abraham in chapter 17 of Breshit. And more to our point, or related, they're both related, but more to our point, the way God speaks to Yaakov in chapter 35 in the Psukim we just saw. Ani el Shaddai pray Ureve. I am Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. And the name Shaddai, it would have seemed to me, at least in these contexts, is related to the idea of, 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 of uh, fertility. So that's very interesting that Bilam employs this particular name when it comes to blessing number three. In chapter 17, when God spoke to Abraham, God speaks about the covenant. It's the covenant of, which is related to circumcision, but it's the covenant between God and Abraham. 
And there God introduces God as Shaddai as well. So this is an interesting, the names are always important to us, of course. And now we have the prophecy number three. Matovu Olecha Yaakov Mishkinotecha Yisrael. So that's how he begins. How beautiful are your tents, your dwelling places. And now the, the, Israel is compared in the, in the next couple of verses to a fruitful, a fruitful garden. So here there are two themes in these two psukim. First is that they are uh, people that, that grow. Notice the uh, imagery of the, uh, of the water throughout. Besides the river, Arozim uh, Arimayim, cedars beside the water. About, in the next verse, their bows drip with moisture. Their roots have abundant water. So there's a sense of water over here that it grows and it's related presumably to the idea of, of growth. We encountered it in chapter 35 when God blesses Yaakov. Chapter 35. And then, in chapter 35, it's not just about fertility, it's about kingship. And here, we have in the second half of this verse, right, that's the verse in 35, you see it right there, verse number 11. And now in our back over here in chapter 24, So here we have the blessing of kingship. The king of Israel, his king, shall rise above Agag. His sovereignty shall be exalted. Here in my previous book, not the one that just came out about kingship, but the one in the Megillah, I pointed out that the name Agag, which appears in the Bible some total of three times, it appears in the story of Shaul, King Saul, in chapter 15 of Amalek. It appears in the Megillah, of course, Haman is the Agagi, and over here is the third time, only these three places. And I pointed out that the name Agag in my view, is related to the word God, which is the roof, which is the highest point. And this verse plays with that. Their king will be Yorom Me'agad Malko, shall rise above Agag, even higher than Agag. The Tina say shall be lifted up, right? Pick up, to lift it up. The kingship shall be raised up. So notice the play on Agag. And of course, it perfectly dovetails with what we find in the blessing to Yaakov, which is the blessing of uh, fertility, the blessing of the blessing of, of kingship. And then let's just continue and finish up over, over here and reflect on this blessing. Again, goes back to the fact that they left Mitzrayim. Right, we had that theme earlier. Earlier, the emphasis was they left Mitzrayim, they don't take with them 
the negatives of Mitzrayim, the divination, the Amal, the Oven, those stories, which of course is parallel to Yaakov leaving the house of Lavan. And here, it's God who freed them out of Egypt, uh, and it talks about possession of the land. They shall devour enemy nations, which of course is the last verse back in chapter 35. Because there God says to Yaakov, your name is not Yaakov, but is Israel. And be fruitful, multiply, kingship, and the land that I promised to Abraham and Yitzchak, I will give to you and your descendants. And over here, it speaks about devouring enemy nations, which is the reason that Bilam was hired in the first place, right? And we, and we finish up the prophecy. This is verse number, was it eight? Let's we go to the next pasuk. You're in Karasha Chav Kariu Chavimi Kimenu, Livarchecha Baruch, Viorecha Abuah. They crash like a lion who shall rouse them. And of course, he ends with those that bless you are blessed, those that curse you are cursed. So, of course, it's a fitting ending to the blessings. He was hired to curse. But his point to Balak is, one might even say, I'm doing you a favor, Balak. Because if I curse them, I curse you. And this way, at least if I bless them, you shall be blessed as well. Now, of course, those that bless you will be blessed and those that curse you will be cursed is all familiar to us. Because it's what God said to Abraham in the beginning of Avram's journey back in chapter 12 of Breshit. But I wanted to point out that this expression, those that curse you are cursed, those that bless you are blessed, and those who curse you are cursed, actually appears elsewhere in the book of Breshit. And it appears, actually, interestingly enough and significant for us, when Yitzchak is blessing Yaakov. He thinks it's Esau, but he blesses Yaakov. And the blessing, of course, that we had seen in the past in chapter 27 of Breshit, that's back in chapter 27 of Breshit, verse number 28, starts in verse 28, etc., in verse 29. And then when you get to the end of verse 29, those that curse you are cursed. Those that bless you are blessed. So the point is that the blessing of those that bless you are blessed and curse you are cursed was not only a blessing that was explicated in terms of Abraham. It's actually a blessing that's given to Yaakov. And the context of it is interesting. The context is that, right? nations will bow down to you and also will bow down to you your mother's sons will bow down to you mother's sons there's only one other son to his mother which is Esau so essentially it's a blessing of sovereignty of Yaakov over Esau those that bless you were blessed those that curse you are cursed so it dovetails very well with what we've seen that of course all of Bilaam's blessings all of them these three plus the fourth all carry with it the same theme, repeated over and over again of Yaakov and Yisrael. That's how this one started. That's the introduction, of course, to this last blessing. So let's, let's just summarize what we have. The first point is that the blessings of Bilam are related actually to Yaakov Yisrael, but they're related to Yaakov Yisrael in a quite precise way. 
the first two blessings are related to Yaakov Yisrael and relate to the Ish story of chapter 32. But the third blessing, Matovu Olalecha Yaakov Mishkanotecha Yisrael, which is a blessing of the entire people. He sees all of the people. He talks about their, 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 their holy spaces, their tents, their Mishkanot. That is related specifically to chapter 35, to when God intervenes and says, and God blesses, and God says, your name is no longer Jacob, your name is Israel. Jacob becoming Israel. So that's the point number one. It's very, very precise over here. It's what's so interesting. And of course, the deeper point that I will mention again is that the reason the two stories are connected or the significance of the connection of the two stories is that each of these two stories, the Torah itself is asking a question. And the question is a very simple one. The question in the case of Yaakov and Yisrael is by what virtue is Yaakov worthy of, of being a, a, a bearer of, the, of this great covenant to stand alongside Avram and Yitzvah? After all, nothing in his past suggests greatness. And the answer the Torah gives is that's true. Of course, that's right. But he has the ability to change. He has the ability to become something else. And he does it by himself. God creates the setting. But the struggle is Jacob's struggle. That's the story of Yaakov Yisrael in our book in Breshit. And then when you get to Bamidbar, the Torah raises a similar question because in chapter 21, the chapter that precedes Bilam, there we have Israel defeating Sichon, which is the beginning of the conquest. Then the Torah stops. Israel has begun to capture the land on the other side of the Jordan. And presumably they will continue to possess the land on this side of the Jordan. And now the question is, by what virtue are they worthy? The first generation couldn't do it. The first generation dies in the desert. They're incapable of moving forward. Is the second generation any better than the first? Why would we assume the second is better than the first? That's the question that the Torah raises, actually, to which the answer the Torah gives through Bilam is, yes, they can become worthy because Jacob can become Israel, because they have this ability to change. And that's the theme of, of Yaakov at Yisrael, both in chapter 32 and also in chapter 35. They're both about to cross over. Exactly. They're exactly parallel, actually, of course. See, when you say it, isn't it obvious? It's a child's play, isn't it? Of course, once you see it, it's obvious. How could you re possibly read it otherwise? But you have to ask the right questions. Why is the story here? That's really the important question. And what I find very striking is this whole, the imagery actually. Now there's something else since I, and I'll, then I'll stop and take comments and questions. Just one more point I wanna make about Bilam, which is, I'm mean, not studying the story of Bilam, which has many pieces to it. Let me make two points about Bilam. First of all, Bilam's name is Bilam, Bilam ben Ba'ar. Right? That's his name, Bilam ben Ba'ar. So the name Bilam ben Ba'ar, who was summoned from the east to curse, that name rings a bell. It rings a bell because in the book of Breshit, there's somebody with a similar name. Where do we have somebody with a similar name in the book of Genesis? Kings of Edom. Excuse me? Kings of Edom. 
King Belob. Yes, actually, the first king of Edom. The first king of Edom. The Torah lists the kings of Edom. That's in chapter 36. These are the kings, right? These are the kings, says the Torah. Kings of Edom, let's find that verse, very striking verse. It's chapter 36 of Breshit, verse number 31. Before there was a king who reigned over Israel. I mean, the verse is very interesting for any number of reasons. The Torah seems to be aware of the fact that there were kings who reigned over Israel. Okay, let's leave it. It's a chronological question over here. But the point is, these are the kings of Edom. And the first king of Edom, so Bela ben Ba'ar is the king of Edom, king of Esau, right? Edom is Esau. And what's interesting is that, remember, the entire blessings of Bilam are focusing on Yaakov Yisrael, are focusing on the story of Yaakov crossing over, beginning with chapter 32, crossing over. And then, of course, and later today, we'll start the story when he actually meets Esau. But this mysterious ish is clearly in some way related to Yaakov's confrontation with his brother Esau, and the dangerous confrontation with Esau. Yaakov thinks it's very dangerous. So it is striking that Bilam, the name Bilam, recalls for us Esau. And and the whole conflict of, of Yaakov and Esau. So the Torah, though it talks about Balak, the king of Moab, right? But it, the, way it, the way it sets it up, the way it frames it, and the connections to Yaakov uh, allow the reader, allow us to think of it not only in terms of, of Moab and, and Balak, etc., but to think of it in terms of Esau. And in this context, it's very striking that there's an intimation in the third blessing that we're to think of Asa, because after all, when it talks about kingship, what does Bilam say? His kingship shall be higher, shall be more exalted or higher than Agag. But who was Agag? Agag is the king of Amalek, of course. Who was Amalek? Amalek is Asa's grandson. And we'll see later on. Amalek is the piece of Esau that doesn't forgive Jacob. That's what Amalek is. It's the piece of Esau that doesn't forgive Jacob. So there already is an intimation over here. The mention of Agag. And actually, even in the fourth blessing that he adds, the freebie that he throws in, he also mentions Amalek. So that's actually very striking. That's point number one. And point number two, there's something else interesting here about the journey of Bilam. Bilam, um, and this, I just want to mention this now, I can't get into it, and I'll stop and take comments and questions, but the point is that Bilam uh, is, is on a journey. In fact, on this journey, we have the incident with this animal, the talking animal, and Bilam says, maybe I should go back, and God says, no, don't go back. I want you to continue. You'll say whatever I, whatever I put in your mouth, you're going to say. And what's interesting is when you study the story of Bilam, you notice there's an expression that appears several times in the story of Bilam. It's very strange. The two words, shalosh regalim. The word shalosh, the phrase shalosh regalim appears several times. I think it's three times. You have to check that out. At least three times, shalosh regalim. Now we know 
Shalosh Ragulim three times, but the expression Shalosh Ragulim in the Torah has a very particular, uh, very particular meaning, which is the three Ragulim, the three festivals, where one makes the ascent, where you actually Ragulim, where you actually, the pilgrimage festivals are called Shalosh Ragulim. So what's interesting is that Bilam, I would say not consciously initially, certainly not consciously, but in effect, what Bilam is doing, he is making an, a kind of ascent. He's ascending to the holy place. In fact, the third blessing is Matovu Olecha Yaakov Mishkinotecha Yisrael. The word Mishkan is used, which often means not just a dwelling place, but a sacred dwelling place. But the sacred dwelling place is interesting in the Bilam story, which raises all kinds of interesting questions, is not the temple. The sacred place is actually the place where, where, where Israel encamps. The, 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 the seeing Israel, as it were, dwelling in their tents is actually encountering, encountering God, encountering the divine. And it even sounds the way in the story because what, what allows him to enter in, into a prophetic state in the third instance is the fact that he stands in God's presence. How does he stand in God's presence? Because he sees Israel dwelling Yisrael. So there is this idea of the ascent. And the idea of the ascent, the idea of the journey, which is central, of course, to the story of Abraham and the Akedah. And also, Jacob's journey parallels that of Abraham. Were we studying the book of Bamidbar, we would spend a fair amount of time seeing the ways in which the story of Bilam plays off not just Yaakov, but plays off the stories of, of, uh, of Abraham and the Akedah in, 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 in particular. It's a story that actually Bilam plays off, one might say, the key stories of Sefer Breshit. If you have a story that plays off both Jacob wrestling with the Ish and the Akedah at the same time, then of course it is gotta be a story that the Torah has imbued with enormous significance. And the significance, of course, is the core question. By, by virtue of what is Israel worthy of entering into this unbelievable covenant? And the answer is their ability to, to change. Jacob becoming Israel, which is that's the birth of Israel. So that's, the, um, that's another interesting feature of the Bilam story. Okay, let me stop at this point and take comments and questions. And then we'll, be, we'll continue with chapter 33. If it's yeah, in the chat, Noah, you can pass that on to me as well. In the Billum story, the element that is that is that is obviously screamingly missing is any is any struggle or, or on the part of Israel indicating that it has the ability to change. Right. So the 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 it's a I would say two things. First of all, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, let me amplify it. In 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 Ezekiel's description. In the middle of his book of of the history of Israel, he his his claim there. I mean, I mean, shockingly for vis-a-vis -vis the tradition, is that is that along the whole way, Israel was in no way a, a, a willing and right partner to the covenant. Well, that's maybe slightly overstated, but there's no question that in Yechezkel, that's certainly the case. God said it pretty, I mean, Cheskel says it explicitly. I'm not saving you for your sake. It's explicit. I'm doing it because of your, your behavior is a kind of Hashem. 
your your mistreatment on the hand of the nations is a chilul Hashem. It's clear, right? So that's one voice. That, that is Yechezkel's voice. The tradition has many voices, but in terms of your question about what what demonstration is there that Israel has in fact changed? Okay, so I, the answer I think is what I've said in the past, there is no demonstration yet. All there is is a question. They've begun to capture the way. The demonstration comes later in the book of Bamidbar in the following way, but I can't get into it. The, the point is the following. The Chumash speaks of two great sins. There are more than two, but they're two great sins. There's the sin of the golden calf, and there's the sin of the spies. Those are the sins of the first generation, which actually, in each case, God gets very angry. God threatens to destroy all of Israel and to make Moshe the new nation. Moshe declines in each case. And uh, Moshe succeeds in, in each case, praying for the people, saving us, or whatever. Those two sins repeat in the book of Bamidbar. You have exactly the same, same two sins. You have Baal Pa'ar, which of course is exactly the ego, if not worse. And you have the story of the moving in God, where Moshe says, you are the Moroccan. So those two sins are identical. This, people make the same mistakes. The issue is, how do you deal with it? How do you solve the problem? And without getting into the details, in these two instances, in the case of ego number two, in the case of Miraglim number two, it's not so much that some outsider saves us. It's much more that either through negotiation or through somebody from within the, from within the community steps up and acts in a way which allows us to move forward. That's Pinchas in the second. It's not that Moshe, who's the outsider, saved us. No, it's someone from within. From within. So in that sense, Yes, the sins are always the same, but in the book of Bamidbar, it's the way that we deal with the mistakes, which allows us, which allows us to, to move forward. That's the short answer. If we were studying Bamidbar, we look at the so shouldn't so, so shouldn't the so should so 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 shouldn't the Bilam story come after the Pinchas story? Not necessarily. It's the, the Chumash is addressing the because the, the Chumash is addressing the question. They've begun to conquer the land. I haven't conquered it yet, by the way. We've only conquered on the other side. But so the intimation is that the fourth generation, fourth generation shall possess it. They are the fourth generation. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the way, well, had it been written the other way, we would explain it as well, but it's written this way. But the, the, it, it's responding to a fact. The fact is the conquest has begun. I'm not saying the two stories are identical. They're never identical. But my point is the question is identical. The question is the worthiness of Israel. That's the point. It plays out differently, which is a good thing, because no two things are ever exactly the same. But the question is the, the key over here. And the important point is, and this is what I what I harp on this so much, it's a question, forget about, about Midbar. When you're studying the book of, of Reshit, it's a question that any reader, I think, with two eyes in their head, asks about Yaakov. How could you not ask that question about Yaakov, our great hero? What kind of behavior is this? You could justify, you could say a million things, but it certainly doesn't sound like heroic behavior. And the fact of the matter is, <clears throat> all the apologetics aside, my point is the Torah itself asked the question. The Torah asked the question for us. That is the Torah's question. It's a very good question to which the Torah gives a very good answer. Anybody else have a comment or question? Feel free to unmute yourselves, or you could raise your hand, and I will give you some help. 
Fran, go ahead. Um, I just have a question about the recognition. Jacob says, I, I've seen the face of God and lived. Where is, is there any, any uh, indication of recognition here that this has happened because the story happens without Israel being aware of them? Well, I think, I mean, we'd have to look back in the, yes, I think there is recognition. I think that when you study Bamidbar in chapter 21, and maybe this responds somewhat to Shmuel as well, there are certain things in the previous chapter, even apart from the victory against Sichon, which suggests that Israel, second generation, has in fact changed. I didn't mean to suggest there's nothing there, there's some very important things there, especially in the very beginning of chapter 21, but we can't really get into that now because um, it's not our topic and it would take us way off base. But my answer, the short answer is absolutely yes. I'll mention one thing. I'll mention one thing. In chapter, um, the way Bamidba works, the first, the first generation does not possess the land and the story in which it is clear that they will not possess the land is in the end of chapter 14, story of the spies. And then at the end of that story, remember a small a group of people, maybe a lot of people get together and say, we're gonna fight anyway. Moshe says, don't do it. God is not with you. Don't fight, you won't win. And the ark stays back and they go to fight. They're called the Mapilim. And, uh, they, uh, and they're, defeated by the, by, they're defeated by Canaan and also by, by Amalek. They defeat them. And that's the end of it. And the place in which they are defeated is called Charmah. Those are the last verses of chapter 14. That's the first generation. That generation dies in chapter 20. Chapter 21 begins with a war against the king of Arad, Canaanite king of Arad, who takes captives. And the Israelites had took a vow. They took a nether. God, if you help us win, we will dedicate the cities to you. And Israel wins having taken the nether, and the place is called Charma. So the, obviously that's an invitation and a very obvious invitation to look at those two stories and to figure out what is the difference between the first Charma in which we lose and the second Charma in which the second generation wins. And of course, what is critical to look at, obviously, is that the second time, there's no mention of the ark at all, but there is a mention of taking a nether. So the nether, which we have already encountered with Yaakov, Yaakov takes a nether, right? Promises to come back and God will be his God and to build the house and all that. So that already is very, uh, that's an opening to, um, for us to think what changed between the first and second generation. I had mentioned to Shmuel earlier that later at the end of the book we see all kinds of changes, but your point is well taken and thank you for the comment, because you already see changes in chapter 14, the, the, chapter 21 via, via the Neder, the second Chorma story. Again, I'm not, my head's not in Bamidbar now, but the point is that is very, very, that's because that's critical to Bamidbar. Bamidbar is about two generations. Bamidbar means the book of numbers. There are two numbers in the book of numbers. The first numbering in the beginning, generation number three, the first generation the one that left Egypt. In chapter 26 of Bamibar, they count them a second time. It's not a second count, it's a second group of people. So it's the second generation. The numbers are similar, not identical. So the book of numbers is a book of two generations. 
And the core question you ask, if you're studying or teaching about Midbar is one of the, if not the core question, what is the difference between the two generations? That is critical. Okay. So anybody else? If not, we will start with chapter 33. If, if you, yes. you have another example of the phenomena just a few psukim later in in Pasuk when they when they uh then they complain and then they but then they repent. They say khatanu and they they ask for forgiveness. So th this is as opposed to the what the things that happen in Shmot when they complain and the miracle happens, something happens, but they don't repent and they don't ask for right. It's a good point that I would add to that additionally, that actually the complaint of the second generation is not a question of better and worse, it's different. The complaint of the first generation typically is why do you take us out of Egypt? Well, what do we need it for? Because we right? It's supposed to die in the desert, we could die in Egypt. At least we had food there. That's the second, that's the first generation. The complaint in the previous chapter, if you look at it carefully, you'll see it's not about going back to Egypt. First of all, why would they want to go back to Egypt? They were actually never there in the first place. They have no longing from Mitzrayim to the homeland, the Altaheim. It's a different complaint. Why are you dilly-dallying in the desert? Let's go and capture the land already. That's the second generation. What With small, why take us in circles? Let's go straight in, let's capture it. So the second generation, they have the impatience of, of, impatience of youth. They want to capture it. The first generation's problem is they're totally dependent. They don't want, they can't take responsibility. They're slaves. The second generation's problem, even in Bamibar, and certainly in the book of Dvarim is the opposite, is that they think they can do everything themselves. They, they, they think they are, they're capable of, they have all the power, all the ability. That's their problem. And there you already see it in the previous chapter. Because what bothers them is, why are we circumventing Adam? Let's just go straight through. And that's, now, in addition to what you said, yeah, they also say we have sinned. It's also true. So there's a whole range of differences for better or worse, and just plain different. The second generation, and there's much more to be said about that difference, which is very critical. Of course, the book of Devarim, that's Moshe's main concern, is worry. Don't think you did it yourself. But the point is, even in Bamidbar, it already is anticipated, and especially in the story that you have mentioned. Yeah, again, Bamidbar has all kinds of interesting pieces to it. Okay, let's get back now to our chapter, chapter 30, chapter 33. Okay, so Yaakov has wrestled with this, struggled, fought with this mysterious ish, and he still hasn't met Esau. And now he's gonna meet Esau, finally. So we start with chapter 33. It says, Yaakov v'inov, so Yaakov raises, lifts up his eyes and behold, and he sees there's Esau with the 400 men. And he was told earlier, Esau comes with 400 men. We discussed the number 400, but it's a big number. So he divides up the children. Vayachatz is to divide, chatzi is half but he's not actually dividing them in half, it would appear. He divides them into groups. Leah and Rachel, maybe you could say Leah and Rachel is one group and Shtei Shvachot is the second group. But at the end of the day, there would be three groups. It says, So he has now three groups. The, what's called Shvachot and their children, the four children of Bilah and Zilpah. 
he puts them first. Then he puts Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Yosef. Rachel, at this point, only has one child, Yosef. So, so he puts Rachel and Yosef at the end, Achronim. I just wanted to point out, to say the obvious, which is that you have over here situation. Now, Yaakov is still afraid of Esau. By afraid, I mean he fears the worst. He, he assumes, or assumes it might be too strong, but he knows it's certainly possible that Esau intends to kill him. He knows Esau did intend to kill him 20 years ago. His mother had said, I'll call you when everything's okay. And she never called him. So therefore, we are left to puzzle over what is Esau thinking? And Yaakov is not in a situation where he's going to think, you know, optimistically, everything's okay. That's not what Yaakov's thinking. So Yaakov said to God earlier, he'll kill me, the mother and the child. So he's afraid that Esau will, in fact, kill him and his whole family. And he sets up the family in three different groups. And what's interesting is that earlier, if you remember back in chapter 32, when he first hears about Esau, he said he divided his people into two camps. He said, if Esau comes to one camp, the other camp will uh, run away. So over here, when he divides them into three groups, the question is, is this really similar to what happened earlier? Okay, now it's three and not two, or maybe it's two, which are two, which are three. But my point is, point I wanna make is that we like to think in life that we have, always have choices, is a good choice and a bad choice. Anybody who's lived, I think, in this world knows that very often that's not the case. Very often there were two choices. There's a bad choice and there's another bad choice. And then the question becomes of the two bad choices, which choice do we make? And here you have the situation where he's actually worried that Esau's going to kill, hurt, wound, kill Yaakov's people. And now he's gonna confront them in a certain way. And the point of, in, in fact, what it sounds like is he's putting the people that are less important to him in the front. He puts the shvachot first and he puts Rachel and Yosef in the back. So it's, what it sounds like to me is that everybody's in danger, but he's taking perhaps extra precautions to protect Rachel and Yosef. And this thinking, by the way, that we encounter over here, that is going to protect one more than the others, is a theme that we will encounter later in the book of Breshit when it comes to, to his son, Benjamin, the remaining son of Rachel. He sends all the brothers out, but he doesn't send them all to Egypt to get food, but Benjamini doesn't send. For he said, maybe misfortune will overtake him. Okay, Yosef's missing, maybe he's afraid to lose his only son, but in point of fact, you have in Yaakov, and that's part of Yaakov, the idea that you know, his, 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 his emotions often dictate what he does. He loves Yosef more than the others. Torah says it, but he shows it. So over here, you have that, an intimation of that already over here, Having said all that, which is the second pasuk, we now come to verse number three. 
And here we have a word that appears over and over throughout the story, the little three-letter word avar. He himself went on ahead, who avar with Nahem. So he goes first. Earlier in the story, for whatever reason, we were told, he brought all his people across. He brought all the family across the Yabo, all the family, the entire family and the possessions. But Yaakov did not cross over himself. He helped them cross over or he crossed over and returned, but he doesn't, he's, he's behind. He is behind. The others cross over and he's behind. And here, there's a change. Here we have, and especially if we assume that the, the, the closest to Esav is in the greatest danger, who are var with Nahem. He passes in front of them. That's a shift. And then he bows down seven times until he comes near to his brother. And here we come to another very important and interesting feature of this entire encounter. The Gemara, of course, says famously that when certain Jewish dignitaries would go to meet, I think it's Rome, but it could be anybody, they would always study this parasha first. Um, they'd always study the parasha first. The way Yaakov deals with Esau, you know, Rome, of course, in the Midrashic tradition is, of course, Esau, the church, it's Esau. And um, so it's interesting to look at this whole story, the way Yaakov deals with Esau. He is his brother. On the other hand, he remember, he knows Esau. He knows what Esau is capable of. Esau is a killer. He knows that. And here, he goes first, but he also bows down seven times. And here, I think what the Torah is doing, the Torah is inviting us in this entire chapter to re reminding us of what is the cause of this whole problem to begin with. And the cause of the problem, the immediate cause of the problem is the fact that Yaakov disguised himself, pretended to be Esav and took a blessing that Esav dearly wanted to get from his beloved father. And the blessing that Yaakov took by pretending to be Esav, back in chapter 27, we notice that in that little blessing, which we saw before, it's two psukim long, but the puzzle number two is Yabducha Amim, Vishtachabu Lachalumim, Heve Gaviriachecha, Vishtachabu Lachabneimecha. So it talks about Yavducha, servitude, slavery. Nations will serve you. And notice that twice it talks about bowing down. Nations will bow down to you, and the sons of your mother will bow down to you. That's Esau. So the, the blessing is Esau bow down to Yaakov, right? Those that bless you are blessed, those who curse you are cursed. And here we have Yaakov bowing down to Esau. Not only seven times, and not only does Yaakov bow down seven times, but in the ensuing Sukim, we are told that the various wives of Yaakov also bow down, right? Together with the children. In verse number, um, in verse number, let's see, six, and in verse number seven, they're all bowing down. Three more times, we have the bowing down. So what's interesting, what the Chumash is doing, obviously, is there's a kind of reversal over here that Yaakov is acting as the servant to, Yaakov calls himself an Evid. 
And by the way, remember that when Asaph comes back from the field and he says, he, he wants the blessing. And he, who are you? I'm Asaph, your son. So who's the guy who came before? Your brother came, he took your, he took your blessing. Asaph says, maybe there's a blessing for me. What about my blessing? And yet Yitzchak answers back in chapter 27, Vayal Yitzchak Vayomer Yisav in the 32nd Pasuk, Hein Gavir Samtiv Lach, Biet Kol Echav Natati Lo Lavodim. I made him the Gavir, the superior one, and his brethren I made Avodim. I made them slaves, servants and slaves. What can I do for you? Uchai Fomoel Sebeni. Yitzchak is stuck. He loves Esav, but what can I do? I already, I made it, I made, you're, you're a servant. What can I do? Asaph persists. Okay, there'll, there'll be a time where you can overthrow. You live by the sword and you can overthrow. But here we have in the story, what the Chumash is doing is revisiting that entire episode. Here, the one who calls himself the Eved is in fact Yaakov. Asaph is called Adoni, Adon, Adon. I counted up the number, I don't remember that's 10 times, I believe, altogether, Adon and Evet. Clearly, and he bows down, we're told, seven times. So what is actually going on over here is a very good question. So let's, let's, we'll, start, we'll start now and we'll see how far we can get. And we'll continue next week. Um, okay, so let's continue here. And then I'll stop and take some more questions. It says, Vayaretz Esav Wikwato Vayichabkein. Esav ran towards him. And he hugged him. And he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And they both cried. Now here is very interesting. Of course, we all know that Rashi uh, attempts to present Esav in the worst possible light, according to a whole school of Midrashim. And again, we don't know whether Rashi, what is driving Rashi whether Rashi thinks this is the pshat, which is hard to believe, or whether Rashi is reading in what Esav becomes into the story over here. And there are intimations that Esav is, is potentially capable of, of, of killing. We know he's a hunter. We know he says he'll kill his brother. We know he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup and he, he, he degrades it. And all those things are true. But over here, once again, the question is, it sounds like it's genuine. Right? But what's interesting is that, you know, the, the they're both crying. They're both crying. Now, the language over here does recall the whole story of Esau and Yaakov, right? Kissing. Yisrael says, come forward, my son, to Yaakov. Right? Right? Kiss me, right? He smells the garment, right? And Yaakov is wearing the, the clothing of Esav and the skins around his neck, his hands and his neck. Chelkat Savarab. So the reader is reminded, of course, of the story of Yaakov and Esav. And we're reminded, and it's interesting, they're both crying. Yaakov cries and Esav cries. And I was thinking that when you think about them crying, that one word, Vayifku, they're both crying. But actually, if you think about it, they both already cried in the past, but in two different settings. Esav cried when he discovered that Yaakov had taken his blessing. And his father says, I gave you a blessing away. 
You have no blessing for me? Okay, what can I do, son? I gave it away. Father, find me a blessing. An ace of cries. That's what ace of cries. When does Yaakov cry? Yaakov cries after he leaves home. Meet Rachel. Yes, he meets Rachel and he, he recognizes, presumably, that he is not home. He's come to the end of his journey. He is, in fact, in exile. <clears throat> and he cries. Of course, the being in exile is a direct function of the two stories are related because Yaakov being in exile is, of course, directly related to the fact that he took the blessing that was due Esau. So two people are crying. And what's interesting is how the very same one word, the plural of Ayyivku, but in that one word, it recalls for us two people are doing the same thing. But it doesn't mean that they're actually doing the same thing. They may be physically doing the same thing. But their, but their thoughts, their, their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions can be lightly as apart. That's what you have over here. You have these, we don't know what Asaph is thinking. Yaakov has no idea, nor do we. What it sounds like is that it's genuine. Sounds like it's genuine. And here, here I would make the following point. Yaakov presumes, he assumes, uh, he certainly is concerned, let's put it this way, that Asaph, in fact, is going to kill him. Asaph's going to kill him. Asaph is because he's so angry, Asaph, about the blessing that Yaakov took 20 years ago. That's what Yaakov thinks. However, when you read the story over here, so one way to read it, and we'll see, it's, it's very complicated, but one way to read it is Asaph doesn't care at all. He's not angry anymore about that. What his mother said was actually true. Give him a cup, give him a few weeks, and he will he will get over it. That's what Rivka said. Why didn't she call Yaakov? Who knows? Maybe she died. We, we don't know why. But Yaakov assumes, why wouldn't he be so angry? I took from him this blessing which has infinite value. And of course, the answer is very simple. It has infinite value for you. And for your brother, it's worth about one bowl of soup. Because the blessing that Yaakov took, actually, the blessing that Yitzchak really has to give. Whether Yitzchak knows it at the time or not, we discussed that. But at the end of the day, the blessing that Yitzchak has, which is of infinite value, is the blessing he got from his father. It's the covenantal blessing. But that covenantal blessing, the Brib and Abitarim, is all about forsaking and foregoing comfort in, in this world. It's about suffering. It's about being a stranger. It's about being enslaved. It's about being abused, Gaywood, Abduth, and Inui, to set it up for the future. And the idea of living a life of misery to set up the possibility for somebody else to be covenantal, that's not for Asaph. The birth, that birthright's worth about a bowl of soup and not an expensive bowl either. Asaph doesn't care. Why would he care? It's not for him. Asaph's the richest guy in the world. Asaph owns an entire country. He walks around with an army. What does he care about? about this covenantal blessing of Gerud, Abdut, and Inuit. Yaakov assumes it. How can he not care about it, you know? How can he not care about it? Doesn't he know how important it is? It's important to you. It's not important to him. So he makes that mistake, perhaps, Yaakov, of assuming that the other person's head is where, is where my head is. Because it's an ultimate value. For you, it does. But for the other guy, it doesn't. And people make these mistakes all the time. I'm reminded of Bush, actually, who assumed that when we go into Iraq, 
the Iraqis will come out waving, waving American flags. That's what he assumed. Democracy, don't they know how good democracy is? No, you know it. They have no interest, actually. That's not the way they live. They have a different way to construct their society, family, tribe, whatever it is. Don't assume the other guys are where you are. So one way to read this is very simple. Yaakov assumes it because what, how could they not be concerned? But, but, now what does anger Esau is something else that even though it's not the blessing that's appropriate for him necessarily, but in point of fact, it is his father's blessing and he does revere his father and his father loves him. In fact, that the other guy took it from me, even though I, I don't even care about it, but if you take it from me, that makes me very angry. So that's certainly the case. We, we, that we know. In any event, it's an interesting verse over here. So yeah, they're both crying. And now let's continue our little story. Let me stop here for a moment and take comments or questions. How much, what, how much time do we have? 15 minutes, okay. Does anybody have a comment or question here? Otherwise we'll just proceed. I find it amazing that the wives are called shvachot. He, he treats all the, all the sons as equals, but the wives he still has like two level, two tier system with. That can only create even more havoc in that. Right, well, you, initially also he had a three tiered system initially because Leah was up initially. Right. Um, it's interesting, by the way, that you point out something which is very true in Sefer Breshit. They're not always called Shvachot. Right. Sometimes they're called his wives, Nasha, Meshe Yaakov. So it depends where. Maybe it's exactly the point that over here, he calls them Shvachot, because over here he's actually dividing them according to, he's putting them in the greatest risk, because he's, 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 he's in a situation, Sophie's choice, he's forced to, be, he has to make a choice, and it's, 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 it's not a good choice, but, but that's what he chooses to do. You know what I mean? It's, it's, he, he, he does space them out. He does space them out, and he's going to put the ones, presumably, that I would say cares about the least. He cares about all of them, but they are shvachot at the end of the day. The one he really loves is Rachel, puts her at the end, you know. I mean, it's true. But it's interesting that the Chumash and Breshit, sometimes it calls them Nashav, and sometimes it calls them Shifchotav. Here it's the Shvachot. So. I, I had a yes. I had a, a thought um, over Shabbos yeah. that the uh, the midrash says that um, Hagar was a uh, a princess, I think. Yes. And is it possible that this is based on the fact that she's never called a shifcha and that she asserts herself by the way she acts, as opposed to these, as opposed to Bilha and Zilpa? Well, she is called a shifcha, actually. Hagar Shifchat Sarai, Amy Zalav Anatewechi. There okay. she's called a Shifcha, she's called an Amma also. So it's it's with Hagar, you also have it. Depends where you, you have to look and see. She's called Shifchat Sarai. She's called Eshet oh. Avraham, she's called Shifchat Sarai, she's called Amma. Depending on the context, she's called different things. From Sarah's standpoint, she's a Shifcha, that's for sure. The question is, what is she from Avram's standpoint? And it's, you know, that's another. <laughs> Because she situation. seems to have a much stronger personality. We don't know anything about Bill Hans Zilpa except for the fact that they gave birth. Right, that's true. We know nothing about them. But not having a strong personality means that there is no real, there's no conflict, actually. We know that Yosef right. hangs out with the Shea, Bill Hans, and Shea Zilpa. There's no conflict. With, with Hagar, right. 
there's conflict with some, and maybe it's mostly Avram's fault, whatever, but, but you're right. There's no sense that, that there actually are real people in the story. They're just two more of his, you know, two more, two more, whatever they are, producing four more children to, for a total of 12. Let me just finish up a couple more psuki. We'll continue with this next week. Okay, now we, we have Vatigashnash. Um, now, verse number five. Who are these people? So many people. Who are they? So Yaakov says, these are the children. Doesn't mention the wives. These are the children that God has, has favored, Hanan, been gracious to me. These are my children. These are my family. Avdecha, I'm your servant, okay? And the point is, I just want to come back. To, I didn't emphasize this sufficiently. The point is that from Yaakov's standpoint, at this point in time, he probably is an abbot. Because remember, the blessing that Yaakov cares about is, is for the future. But right now, in the, in the present, the powerful one, of course, is Esau. Yaakov is relative to Esau, has no power whatsoever. He doesn't have a small family, but in the simple shot of the Chumash, he's in, if there were there to be a fight, it would be much of a fight. One has a standing army of 400 men and the other has, you know, apart from the fact that he's probably limping along himself, women and children, basically. So it's, uh, these are the ones that God has been gracious. We'll see, we'll come back to this verse in a couple of minutes. Now we have the bowing down. I would add over here that this, I would call it a procession of bowing down. First Yaakov goes seven times bowing down, then an additional three bowings down, total of 10. Um, and he spaces them out. And I think the Chumash is reminding us of what Yaakov did initially in the previous chapter. When he sends the gifts to Esav, the animals to Esav, he instructs his men to leave a space between them to demonstrate that, that there's a lot, that I, that I have a lot for whatever reason, maybe a lot that I'm, I'm going to give it to you, or maybe a lot to, to explain why. Another possibility is that what Yaakov's concerned about, he doesn't know Esav's coming towards him yet. But what Yaakov is concerned about, I didn't make this point earlier. What Yaakov may be concerned about in the previous chapter is he's been away for 20 years. I have delayed. So he wants to, so he's, but he's coming back to claim this land. What do you mean you claim the land? You've been away for 20 years. That's, that's what Esau might say. Esau's already left. He doesn't know that yet. But the point is, and even if he did, does know it, he still could have a claim on the land. So Yaakov is saying, listen, there's a reason I'm, it took me 20 years to get back here. I've delayed because I've been busy building my family and building my, building my empire. So the spacing out is a way to demonstrate, as he says, etc. And I've delayed until now. But over here, you have the same spacing. He spaces them out. And here, to emphasize, each, each one is bowing down. So it's to... It's to um, is to increase the sense of servitude. One group comes and bows down, then they leave, then another group bows down, then another group bows down, and he's bowing down. It always to emphasize what Yaakov says, Abdecha, and you are Adoni. But Yom, Esau says in the next verse, 
What's with this machane? Remember, he sent the machane, he sent the gifts. Esav calls it a machane. To find favor in the eyes of Adoni, my Lord. So notice what Yaakov says two different things. When it comes to the women and children, God has been gracious to me, your servant. That's himself. When it comes to the so-called machaner, what Yaakov calls a machaner, Yaakov says, no, the machaner is not about me. The machaner is to gain your favor. I want to gain favor in, in your eyes. You are, in fact, Adoni and I'm the Ebed. That's the way Yaakov presents himself to Esau. I'm the Ebed and you're the Adon. Fine. Machane so and Mincha have the same letters. Yes, I'll get to that. I'll get to Machane and Mincha. But Chumash plays with, with Chetnu and over and over again. Chananoim et Avdecha, Machane, Mincha, Chain is another one, etc. And at the very end, Vayichan Espenei Ha'ir. It plays with it consistently. It does this elsewhere in the Chumash too, but let's stick to the story. Esav says to Yaakov, my brother, I have Yeshri Rav. Rav means I have a lot. I have plenty. Here they translate as enough. Rav doesn't really mean enough. It means I have a lot, but the context is enough. Listen, I got plenty of stuff. My brother, why don't you keep, what you have keep for yourself. I mean, we can't, we, we can't hear the tone. Maybe he's thinking, this, you schlepper. Okay, you have a nice a big family, never. I mean, I own, I own an entire country, you know. You have, a nice, you have a nice little business, that's very nice. You know, you have a little business, like Amazon. You own Amazon, okay, it's a nice business. I, I, own, I, I own a country, not, not, not business. I own a whole country. I walk around with 400 soldiers, but you're gonna give me something? That's one way. But he says, brother, listen, he said, he's, maybe he's being very nice. Listen, thank you so much. It's a wonderful gesture. It's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. But when he says, Yeshri Rav, of course, that rings a bell for us. Because when Rivka went to find out about the twins that were inside her, struggling inside her, the Oracle says to Rivka, you have two nations, right? They always struggle. The Rav Yavod Sa'ir. The great one shall serve the lesser. Rav Yavod Sa'ir. Now, of course, the verse itself is not 100% clear because in Hebrew, the syntax could be reversed. Does it mean Rav Yavod Sa'ir, that the great shall serve the lesser? Or does it mean the Rav, and concerning the greater one, Yavod Sa'ir, the Sa'ir will serve the greater? You could read it both ways. But the primary way I think we would read it is that the greater shall serve the lesser. So, Yeshli Rav, is an intimation, not that Esav intends to say this, but the, but, the, but the narrative voice says it to us. Yes, it's not necessarily that Yaakov is conceding his, his, his blessing. He concedes it in the present, but he doesn't concede it in the future. In any event, Esav, if we want to read him magnanimously, Esav is saying, you can keep it. There's no need for it. Look, I have so much stuff. Let's take this last verse and we'll continue this next week. Next two verses are critical verses. Says, please, notice the word no, please, please. If I find chen, once again chen, and as Debbie said very well, it's not a machane, it's a mincha. There's a difference in machane and mincha. A mincha is a gift. And not only is it a gift, 
in the chumash it's often, it can be also a, a, a sacrificial gift. Take my mincha, take my mincha. Ki ra'iti panecha ki Elohim For seeing your face is like encountering the face of God v'atutseni. Ratzon in biblical Hebrew usually means acceptance. Appeasement, acceptance, and usually sacrificial acceptance. Ritzay, the blessing of Ritzay and the Amida, accept our sacrifices and our prayers. Right? So, but of course, when you read this, you recall the story of Yaakov confronting the Ish. Yaakov said, I have seen God face to face and I have survived. So the verse is very interesting. On one hand, he's saying, seeing your face is like seeing God's face. And when you see God's face, typically in the Torah, what does the Torah say? Do not come empty handed. Lo come. Right? So I seeing you is like encountering the divine. I want you to accept my sacrificial gift and I want you to be appeased by it. And part of that, in my view, is that Yaakov understands that Esau, that he actually heard Esau. He heard Esau, blessing is appropriate, inappropriate, doesn't make a difference. And he, he requires forgiveness. So the idea, he has to make amends. So it's not it's very nice that Esau says, I don't want it. But Yaakov says, no, it's not a machane, it's a mincha. Seeing you as like encountering the divine, there's something, there's a religious encounter over here, which, in, which involves me, in fact, um, which involves the necessity of me asking forgiveness, and, and, and forgive me. Whether Esau may say to himself, forgive what, who cares? But it doesn't matter from Yaakov's perspective. Of course, the very same Pasek recalls something else, which is Yaakov's ability to struggle and, and to overcome. At the same time, Yaakov was in fact wounded. So the very same Pasek is two things. Yaakov, in other words, what you have over here is two things that come together, interestingly enough. One is asking forgiveness. And the second thing is, which sometimes we think contradicts, but it doesn't, a very strong sense of self. That's what comes through in this verse. He's recalling that event. You can overcome even the divine adversary. That's, that's, what, that's the blessing that Yaakov has. And Yaakov, Yaakov has told this. I've seen God face to face and I lived. I can, if you can see God, if you can, if you can survive the divine encounter, you can certainly survive the human encounter. That's Yaakov's thinking. This is who I am. I have a blessing. I'm going to. So there's a very, very strong sense of self, but it doesn't contradict quite the opposite. The other point, which is, but I'm a sinner, but I hurt this other person and it's important for me that he in fact forgive me. He may say, don't bother, but I have to bother, right? And then he adds, So this is a verse we'll start with next week. But it's interesting, the machaner in verse number 10 became a mincha, but in verse 11, it becomes something else, a blessing. Take also, the blessing that I have brought you. At asher and the one who understood this very well, of this idea of suddenly the blessing, the bracha, was the anonymous author of the book of Shmuel. I just wrote a book about that book. And... 
Here you have a story in the book of Shmuel, which plays off this encounter. With the machaneh, where the mincha becomes a bracha. Take the blessing, which I have brought to you. Ki Elohim, God has been gracious to me. said earlier, kol, I have everything I need, kol. Esav said yeshri rav. What Yaakov is saying is yeshri kol. I have everything that I need. I have the, I have the blessing that I really, that, that, that is everything for me, which is the covenantal blessing. Then Esav initially doesn't want to take it. So next week, I wanted to talk about the significance of Esav not wanting to take it and Yaakov insisting why he takes it. We know why Yaakov insists. He insists because he needs forgiveness. Why does Esav not want to take it is the question. Yes, I'll stop any more comments or questions, then we'll stop this parent to either of them that part of that mincha could have been Leah, depending on Ace of turn of uh, personality or events. This was like a double rejection. I mean, he has Leah there, but it could have been. Did they know that or that's just Rashi or something? That no, Leah, there's no sense in the Chumash that Leah knows that Ace of exists. That's mm-hmm. a midrashi about Rachel and Leah and Yaakov and Ace being paired. But in the Torah, right. I can't find any evidence in the Chumash that there's right. anything to that. But Maybe. there would have been the- Potential of Asav, depending on that potential, it could have gone that way. That's what we had it could learned. Go, it could theoretically go that way, but in point of fact, uh, you know, I don't think it's in the text. I think that we understand why Yaakov wants him to accept it. What I think is interesting to think about is why does Asav have to be urged to take it? I mean, he says initially, I don't need it. He doesn't need it. I went mm-hmm. in a little more machane. I, I have plenty of my own. I have a lot. Yeshri Rav. Yaakov, though, insists. I want to come back to this set of psukim next uh, next week. We'll stop at this point. Um, okay, so we'll stop here. If anybody has any questions or comments, yeah, Susia. Yeah. Um, when said Yeshli Rav, and you hinted that you went back with uh, Ravi Avot Sa'ir, I wasn't sure I understood what you meant. Are you implying that Yaakov says that even though my mother was told, Rabbi about Sa'ir, I am not going to serve you. Is that is that his point? Well, I mean, the point I was making was, I didn't spell it out. The point I was making was that the story operates on two levels. One is the talking to each other. But then the Chumash speaks to us. There's someone telling us the story. And my point is the Torah is reminding us of this blessing. And my, the point that I was pushing for before was that Yaakov's, the blessing that Yaakov has, which for Yaakov, which for the Chumash is what matters, the covenantal blessing. Yaakov has that blessing. Yaakov doesn't give up on that blessing. Esav doesn't have it, and I don't think he's interested in it altogether. It's, it's not for him, it's not appropriate. It's about the future. My point is that in, the, in, the, in this present moment, it's what Yitzhak had said, there'll be times when you can overthrow your brother and he'll serve you. Um, you'll take off the yoke. You'll take the yoke off your tzavar, and here he falls on his tzavaro and they kiss each other. And my point is that the, one of the themes I try to put out this morning is that on one hand, Yaakov has to make amends. Yaakov knows he has the ultimate blessing. But in the present moment, the reality of right now is he's the Evid, and Asaph has the upper hand. Asaph's the powerful one. And it's Yaakov's blessing is for the future. So right now, when Yaakov says, I'm your Evid and all that, and you're the Adon, it has the ring of truth. Not that he venerates Esau, but the reality is Esau is the powerful one, Yaakov is not. And that's not contradicting anything that we read before. Because at the end of the day, Yaakov's whole life will be a life of a difficult life. 
says himself, I, my years are few and, and bad. He says it himself, but he's setting up the future. But Esav has what Esav wants, which is success in the moment, which is why I don't believe Esav's angry, actually. Angry about what? Yeah, they, yeah, you, sh you shouldn't have missed him. Yeah, my father loved me. I wasn't right. Angry about that, maybe. But at the end of the day, he gets exactly what he wants. Most powerful man in the world. What does he care? He's got a young brother. Okay, you're doing okay. You, you needed a good doctor, I'll get you a doctor. I mean, it's, Yaakov thinks because for Yaakov, it's all has ultimate significance that for the other guy, it does. But that's not the case. Thank you. All right, let's uh, we'll continue this. next week with this, um, with this, uh, we live in a crazy world. <laughs> I will say one thing that, you know, Putin makes these comments. I just got to say this. I know the year is over. This is just, this is not just a thought. Makes the comments about the Ukraine. It's true that the Ukrainians in general, the time of the Nazis, there are terrible stories about many Ukrainians. That's for sure true. The camps are run by them. That's all true. But let's not forget one thing. The first major leader who made a treaty with Adolf Hitler was Joseph Stalin with the Russians. Yes. One monster double crossed the other. But what are we talking about? They made that they, they, they were their partners. They were their partners. I mean, the, the hypocrisy has no has no bounds, you know, it's beyond. Anyway, well, nothing's nothing else is new. All right, so we'll, next week we'll continue. Yeah, Richard, you want to have one last word? I, I just wanted to say <clears throat> that if you look at the tenses in verse nine, you'll see support for your view of Asav and his, also for his reconciliation, because he speaks in the present tense that I, I have Rav. But for you, you can have in the future whatever you want. Right, yeah, I think that's... So I he's, think, reconciled, think that's he's reconciled to whatever will happen later in terms of the covenant. He has, he has his money now. Right, I don't even, I don't even think he's... He's the guy who says, listen, I, what do I care about the future? I'm hungry now. I know oh, he's saying now. Right what do I care about? Oh, well, later, what happens later true. on, who knows? Right now, I'm hungry. That's the mentality. And but it's explicitly shared by earth. a lot of people. I would say, probably the great majority saying. of people. We live, we live now. What's going to be in the future? Who knows? But right now, we, right now, we need the food. So, all right, we'll stop here now. Looking forward to next week. Next week, by the way, we have two things. We have, um, oh, I know. Why don't you just announce me? Uh, okay. Um, hopefully I will cover everything that you're hoping that I cover, but first of all, thank you Rabbi Silver for a wonderful class and for everyone else here and also on Facebook Live and Drisha Live for being part of our learning community. We really appreciate it. We will take care of the Facebook issue. We will stop putting our faith in Mr. Zuckerberg and take things into our own hands. Um, and as Rabbi Silver hinted, we have lots coming up, uh, not just next week, but tonight, uh, we actually have a class starting with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukier. Uh, he's going to be looking at uh, issues related to Shabbat in Talmud. So if you can't get by with only one daily dose of Drisha, you have an opportunity to get a booster this evening at 8 p.m. Eastern. And we have several other wonderful classes ongoing throughout the week, including Rabbi Silver's class on the sitter. Uh, and we have pre-registration open for our Colel, pre-registration open for the Beit Midrash for Mental Health Professionals and Clergy, and our girls' summer programs, high school and middle school, have applications open until March 15th. Rabbi Silver, what did I miss? 
And next, uh, on well, the two things, there's the back Court lecture on the 27th of March. And next week, there's a special Purim program. Oh, yes. Starting at 12 o'clock, I'm part of it, and there's going to be two other speakers and, and a panel, yeah. which should be very interesting. Living in exile, theme of exile, should be quite interesting. Is that next 12. week or is that on the 13th? That's the, I'm sorry, it's the 13th, my mistake, two weeks, right? Okay, all right. So you're two weeks, welcome two weeks, to sign mistake. up for everything on our website as soon as it's right. available. Um, and we you know, do like to email folks to let you know when things are available. And I have Rabbi Silver's email in the chat if you want to uh, ask him Torah questions or I don't know, possibly fight with him about politics. I don't know if that's going to go over well, but you know, it always takes two to tango. Um, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in other classes. And if none of those work out for you, then hopefully, God willing, back here next week for the continuation of this class. Please be well.